What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Joe DeSena, a New York Times bestselling author and the founder and CEO of Spartan. Spartan is the world's largest obstacle race and endurance brand. They host more than 250 events across 40 plus countries, and more than 7 million people have competed in the Spartan race. In this conversation, Joe and I discuss why he left Wall Street to start the business, the impact that the mafia had on his life, the biggest challenges he has faced along the way, the keys to a happy and healthy life, and so much more. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this one. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. It's the one tech product that I wear 24-7. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone, and it automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity levels in the app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals change over the course of the day, depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or you're just wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. And Whoop is now offering 15% off their new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is Underdog Fantasy, the easiest and best way to play fantasy sports. Join a league and draft a team in minutes. They make it that easy, and yes, that simple. But if you'd like to spice things up, try their new Pick'em game. Just pick over or under on your favorite or least favorite player stats, and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Underdog keeps it super simple with their easy-to-use website and mobile app. Just pick between two and five players, and you could take home some cold, hard cash. Go to underdogfantasy.com and use code POMP. That's P-O-M-P, POMP, and get your first deposit doubled by Underdog today. All right, let's get into this episode. Joe Pompliano runs POMP Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of POMP Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, Joe, I have a million questions that I want to ask you today. Everything from how big your business is and everything that you're talking about on the leadership side. But I think the most logical place to start is with Spartan itself and the business. Let's talk through first how you came up with the initial idea before we get into actually how big the business is today. Can you walk me through that? Oh, I got to go way back. I mean, I got to go back to the 1970s in Queens. New York. If you saw the movie Goodfellas, I grew up ground zero for Goodfellas. Crazy place. Lots of people going to jail. Lots of discussions around pizza, ganolis, cement. My mother walks into the only health food store probably on the East Coast. Her mom had cancer. 
And there's a yogi who had just landed from India at John F. Kennedy Airport, came into this health food store. At the same time, my mother was there. They start talking. Next thing you know, my mother's into yoga, meditation. She's going to become a vegan. She comes home. She throws away. I remember the day she throws away the sausage and peppers. This guru, this guy became her guru, 70 plus year old Indian fellow. He introduces my mom to a 3,100 mile race in Queens, New York around a one mile loop. So you run the loop 3,100 times, 50, 60 days of running. And the idea was to show yourself how powerful the mind is. If the mind could go around a one mile loop 3,100 times, like you could do anything in life. So uh, she introduces it to my sister and I. Everybody thinks my mother's a crackpot, including me. We don't want any part of it. My parents ultimately get divorced and my mom starts teaching yoga. Anyway, fast forward, I don't know, 15, 20 years. I'm not following my mother's teachings. I'm working my way to Wall Street. I want to make money. I want to roll $100 bills in my pocket. I want a Cadillac like all those organized crime guys had. I'm on Wall Street. I make it to Wall Street. I feel like I've arrived, you know? I'm sitting on a trading desk. I'm in my 30s, late 20s, late 20s, early 30s. I feel terrible. I'm making money, but I feel terrible. I'm lethargic. I'm sitting on a desk. I'm not eating well. I'm, I'm chasing all the wrong things. And my cousin, my mother's sister's son, calls me up and says, you got to do one of these hot yoga classes. I said, here we go again with the yoga. He says, no, 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 Joe, it's tough. It's really hard. You're going to like it. So I go to do this hot yoga class, and I love it. And all the years, my mother had been pushing all these things that I wouldn't even do a yoga class with her. I, I fall in love with it. And then I meet a guy in a stairwell. Our building, the elevator broke. I meet a guy in a stairwell because I got to take the stairs up to my apartment. And he looks like he's a model. He's on the cover. Literally, the guy's on the cover of Men's Health, right? He's ripped. He's carrying two dumbbells up the stairs. I said, what are you doing? He goes, this is how I train. Everybody wants to look like this guy. So... I'm like, can I train with you? He's like, yeah, meet me in the mornings, you know, 6 a.m. We'll go up and down the stairs carrying dumbbells. We'll do all kinds of stuff. I get to know this guy and he says, have you ever done an adventure race? I said, no, I never, I don't even know what that is. Takes me out to do this adventure race, which was an hour kayaking, an hour running, an hour biking. And oh my God, did I feel alive, right? I felt great. It felt like yoga times 50. So I fell in love with it. And I started asking people, like, what is the hardest race in the world? What's the most challenge? What? Give me a race where I might die. And I started getting introduced to all these crazy races. It was the mid to late 90s. And I started just, I started doing this stuff. And I fell in love with it. And then I started roping people into it. By early 2000, the year 2000, I said, you know what? I'm going to do this as a business. And so 22 years ago, I started putting on races. And our first race... Not many people know we put on, it was in the British Virgin Islands. It was 350 miles long because I was, you know, my standard was 3,100 miles from years ago that my mother showed me in Queens, New York. So 350 miles seemed like a short distance if you were going to put on a race. Why would I put on a race that was three miles long, right? Anyway, I ended up losing a guy. One of the people that worked for us ended up in a dinghy, a little boat, somehow drifted away. We lost him. Eight days later, I got the Coast Guard involved. We found him. He had drifted 150 miles to Little Tobago, a deserted island. We found him with the Coast Guard. He survived on crabs 
and water that had drifted there. So after that experience, I didn't know if I was going to get sued. I didn't know if the guy died. You know, did we make a mistake? How did we lose somebody? This is probably not a business we want to be in. Sports Illustrated did a story on it, The True Survivor. And I was a glutton for punishment. I fell in love, I fell in love with seeing participants change their lives as they came across the finish line. And so I started putting on races. So from 2000 to 2010, for 10 years, I put on the craziest races the world had ever seen. The death race, just crazy stuff. And no one showed up. No one wanted to participate. You know, I'd get 10 people, 20 people. I used to have to lie to people and tell them, hey, I'm doing a barbecue this weekend up on our farm in Vermont. Do you want to come up for a party? But it really wasn't a party. It was a race. You know, why are you waking me up at five in the morning, Joe, to, to a barbecue? Well, we got to carry the barbecue up the mountain. And they didn't know they were the ones being barbecued. So anyway, for 10 years, I put on events and it was really, really hard to get people to do them. By 2010, after the financial crisis, I said, you know, this is stupid. I've, I've been so irresponsible. I've lost so much money trying to convince people to do stuff they don't want to do. How are you funding it at this point? It's just savings that you had saved up basically from your Wall Street career? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, had made, I had made some money on Wall Street. Like I said, I was completely irresponsible. I was just burning, burning through my, it would have been easier to light the money on fire. And I'm burning through all this money, putting on these races. Nobody wants to do them. By 2010, I said, you know, it would be easier to sell cotton candy and handbags. Like people just don't want to do hard stuff. And then in 2010, against my better judgment, I decided to give up the 350 mile distances, give up the crazy races and put on something we called Spartan. And it was going to be three miles, eight miles, 13 miles. And it was going to do all the same things. It was going to attempt to change people's lives, but it was going to be accessible. And 700 people showed up to the first race. 700 people. That was more people than I had seen in 10 years with all the races I put on. And I'm sitting there with a guy from Discovery Channel, who I happen to know. And the guy says, oh, my God, do you see what's happening here? I said, no, what's happening? He said, look, people are transforming before us. They are literally coming alive. Look at them on the start line. Look at them in the finish line. He said, you, you've got something here. And so then we put on a second race and a third race. Before you know it, we were in 45 countries. and We were competing with a company called Tough Mudder. I would show up somewhere in the world and Tough Mudder would show up the weekend after or the weekend before. And they were driving me absolutely crazy. But that competition, as we know, competition drives you. That competition woke me up early in the morning, made me work harder, made them work harder. And we built an industry because of that fight, because of that competition, that battle. So over, you know, over eight or nine years fighting with each other in a healthy way, we built this enormous market where 10 million people have graduated between Spartan and Tough Mudder somewhere in the world. Finally, we were making money. It was 2019. And so we bought out our competitor. We bought Tough Mudder. It was a really smart move, except a month later, fucking pandemic hit, sent us into a uh, downward crashing, painful spiral. So let's parse this out here. I want to talk about the business and the economics and kind of how all of this works. Whatever you're willing to share is great. But I want to talk about it pre-COVID and then after COVID, right? Because I'm assuming that the business changed dramatically when that happened. Pre-COVID, how do these races make money? How are you putting them on? Where are you hosting them and so forth? Well, we host them all over the world. Like I said, 45 countries. We find places that have you know, the ability to park two or 3,000 cars, which is challenging to find a location like that. 
it cost us a fortune to put on a high quality event. We're spending five or $600,000 to put on a high quality event. And then we got to market like crazy to try to rip people off the couch and convince them that rather than watching Netflix in their pajamas, they should be crawling under barbed wire with dirt in their mouth. Tough stuff. Was marketing a bigger expense than actually putting on the race? Marketing becomes easier as you get more people. So think about it. From word of mouth. Yeah. Once you commit, then you get a friend to do it. And that friend gets two friends. And so again, no one wants to do challenging things. But if you see that there's 5,000 people from your neighborhood doing it, it sucks you in. So marketing is incredibly expensive in the early days, but it becomes less expensive as you get closer to the event. It's a very low margin business. This is not a business I would recommend. Like if we were doing a Harvard Business School study right now, this is not a business to, to get in. If you're looking to make money, it'd be better to open a lemonade stand in your driveway. There's so many other ways. The best way to make, I tell people all the time, the best way to make a million dollars in this industry is to start with 10 million. Yeah. It's funny because I think everyone looks at like software companies today, right? And they scale from zero to a billion dollar valuation in two or three years. And you see it on TV, you see it in the Wall Street Journal and so forth. And that's like the model. And then you totally forget that there's like physical business out there that have a ton of assets that have to go put on events and do all these different things. And it's just a completely different business model, but it's also, they're both challenging, but I think this is challenging to a completely different degree. Yeah. This is, there's easy ways to make money and there's hard ways. This is the hard way. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about after COVID. I'm assuming COVID shut down everything. You can't host a lot of these events. International travel is obviously extremely difficult. When did you hear about this? What was your reaction and what did you guys do? I mean, it wasn't that hard, right? I, I only, only 99% of our events got shut down and we couldn't travel anywhere. <laughs> and we had already sold 350,000 tickets by March 1st, on which I couldn't deliver that service or product to those customers because I was shut down. So I had 350,000 people that showed up literally on my farm with torches and tar and feathers that wanted to kill me. I was in Sparta, Greece. I was with Gerard Butler. I was with the, the producers of the movie 300. I was with the mayor of Sparta. And we were lighting the torch for the Olympics. It was coming through, carrying the torch. It was coming through Sparta, Greece. We were at a big dinner. Everything was going well. And I get like 50 texts that night when I go to bed that the country is being shut down. Trump is shutting the country down. You've got like six hours to make it to Heathrow and get in before the door closes and you're stuck in Europe forever. I mean, because at that moment in time, we didn't know, like, we didn't know what we know now, right? So anyway, I raced to Heathrow to get back home. My wife would have killed me if I got stuck in Europe. And I had the opportunity to talk to a close friend of mine who owns Saks Fifth Avenue. And, and, and he owns 50 million square feet of real estate. He's an incredibly successful, incredibly smart guy. And he said, cash is king. You better shut down. You're going to have to, he calls it killing puppies. He goes, you're going to have to shoot some puppies. He goes, you're going to have to furlough some people. It's going to hurt. It's going to suck. But if you run out of cash, you're out of business. So we, we very, very quickly on his advice made some immediate pivotal moves just to make sure we could survive to fight another day. We moved to my farm in Vermont, moved the family there, moved a bunch of the employees there that stayed on. And we literally, 4.45 a.m. every morning, we were up in the barn. 
I was holding a 5.20 a.m. global conference call every single day for 100 days in a row where anybody could get on, but, but our team around the world would get on. And we would talk about what's going on in Japan, what's going on in Malaysia, what's going on in Argentina, because none of us had information. We were getting our information from the news. We didn't know. And so we did this global call 100 days in a row. We did four workouts a day, which we filmed and motivated a bunch of people. My six-year-old daughter was holding a workout. She was getting millions of views, holding little workouts from the barn. So we pivoted to try to keep the community alive with a bunch of content. We had some fun. I got in incredible shape. And then when that was over, when the world opened up again, after no one coming in my friggin' office in Boston or opening the mail or anything other than my assistant, she'd go in there alone. We, we started to reopen and started to put on races again. But the problem is, the problem is when you got to go from zero back to 100 miles an hour, that's where the pain actually gets inflicted because it's like starting from scratch again, like 10, you know, 20 years earlier. And so we burned, we literally burned $50 million of cash, five, zero, think about that, to try to get this machine going again. So anyway, let's not, let's not cry over spilt milk. Yeah. I, I want to talk about something that I read when prepping for this interview that I thought was interesting. And I'll just say two words and then I'll let you go on with it and tell me what you learned or what it means to you. And it'll probably shock some people because I think it's out there. But the two words are mob bosses. Talk to me about what that means to you and what you learned. Yeah. So listen, I grew up, my father, when my parents got divorced, my father's neighbor was the head of one of the organized crime families. I built a, a, a swimming pool business when I was a kid and I had all those guys were my customers, all the bosses and all the people below them. Anyway, my first job with this guy, he sat me down literally the first day and he said, listen, he said, you want to be successful? I said, yeah. He said, rule number one on time is late. You got here at 8 a.m. You were supposed to be here at 8 a.m., but you should get here 7.45. 7.45 is on time. On time is late. Number two, you got to go above and beyond. I'm paying you to clean the swimming pool. But if you don't straighten up the shed, straighten up the lawn furniture, clean the windows, do whatever, go above and beyond, you're not going to have this job very long. You got to make yourself invaluable. Number three, don't ask for money. Don't have your hand out. You'll get paid if you do a good job, which is not intuitive. Most people have their hand out. Anyway, I've carried those three things along with the 500 things my father taught me and some other folks have taught me. But those three things have been incredibly valuable in my life. And I try to share them, but, you know, not a lot of people get it. Most people don't want to go above and beyond. Most people can't make it on time. And certainly I interface with tons and tons of business folks. Certainly most people do not. Most people have their hand out asking for money before they even do anything. What do you think is holding the average person back? whether it's in their, their career, whatever it might be, what do you think is holding the average person back from succeeding at what they want to succeed at? Well, just by definition, they're average. They probably are doing 20% of what's required to be done and wondering why they're not successful. And the folks that are above average are doing 120% of what's required. And still, they feel like they're not doing enough. And by the way, I'm a crazy person. I am not suggesting people out there should, should be like me. I can't sit still. Easter Sunday, my phone is supposed to be down. We're at church with family. We're supposed to be enjoying the day. And my mind can't, like, I'm already like, all right, what, what did I get done at 5 a.m. this morning before the family was up? Once we get out of church, what could I do so that I could prepare and get ready for Monday? 
Like, you know, I can't imagine Elon Musk is sitting around much. Jeff Bezos is not sitting around much. Kim Kardashian is not sitting around much, no matter what you think of her. It's funny you say that because we're recording this on, what's today, Tuesday? Elon Musk mentioned, I saw an interview he did yesterday with Ted, the Ted Talk, right? And he said, basically, every waking minute, he's focused on one of his businesses. And specifically, he was talking about Tesla. And that's not to say, you know, he's the hardest work in the world. I'm sure there's plenty of people that work very, very, very hard. But he just talked about the cost benefit to him, right? Not only advancing humanity from a multi-planetary standpoint with SpaceX and everything he's doing there, but he did the numbers and he says that every minute he spends either today or in the future on Tesla is worth about a million dollars, right? So when you think about it in the context of that, someone who is the wealthiest person in the world has the opportunity to, at this point, do whatever they really want to do, given their the economic incentive, they're still motivated to work at an incredible rate, given what they believe they need to accomplish. So I think he's a good example of the, of the people you mentioned, because he has obviously a tireless work ethic. And when you combine that with someone who is creative, someone who is smart, someone who's intellectual, all of those things, and passionate, then you get someone like him, who's, who's an exceptional human being, you know, one in a million. One in a billion. Yeah, exactly. So if you're listening or you're watching this and and you feel like you want to be above average, well, then you got to have an above average work ethic. You've got to have an above average, you know, appetite for doing hard stuff. You know, people say to me all the time, when, when do you when do you sit and smell the roses? I'm like, there wouldn't be any roses to smell if there wasn't somebody trimming them, pruning them, right? Like, like watering them. Like somebody's got to do the work. You can't all sit around and smell roses. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And how do you change that in someone, right? I know you do a lot of corporate retreats. You work with Fortune 500 companies. You work with Wall Street banks. You work with a bunch of large companies that have leadership initiatives, and they come to you with their employee base and teams and try to get you to train them to work not only as a unit and kind of cohesive and have that relationship, but to, to mold them as leaders and to mold them as a, as a group towards a higher mission. So how do you do that? What do you do? I'm assuming a part of it is maybe some physical labor to some degree, but I, I would imagine a large percent of it is still mental. So just talk me through how you think about working with, with teams and the leadership aspect. Look, at the end of the day, if you want to transform the mind, uh, it starts with the body. The mind sits inside the body. So we've got to completely tire out, work out the body to a place where you're so fatigued that your mind wants you to quit, whatever that thing is, whatever it is we're working on. And not only does it want you to quit, but it opens up and, and you get to a place where you just want water, food, and shelter. And when you get to that place, that's where transformation can take hold, can happen. It's no different than turning you know, iron into steel. You want to turn iron into steel, you got to heat it, you got to pound it, you got to drown it. So if somebody's going to come for a corporate retreat or they're just going to show up on the farm because They've got a, a drinking problem or they're feeling like they're not squeezing the most they can out of life or whatever. We're going to break them down physically. When they're completely broken down and open-minded at that point, we're going to dump a bunch of information into their head and then we're going to build them back up. And during that process, they individually or collectively as a team transform. And when you talk to the individuals who have come to the farm or the teams or the Fortune you know, 50s or like the transformations are unbelievable. What happens is incredible. But the reality is, like we said earlier, most teams, most, they don't want to do it. It's too hard. You'd rather go to a spa. 
In a spa, you get a bathrobe, you get a massage, you get a foot rub, but that's not where transformation takes place. What do you do today to stay in shape? I got a, a new workout I started like three weeks ago. I get on streaks, like 300 burpees a day for you know forever. Carry a kettlebell everywhere I go for forever. My latest streak, I'm about 25 days in here, 22 days in. I get on the um, assault bike. You know the assault, the oldest, fast. Yep. Right? I get on the assault bike. I knock out 30 minutes, 300 calories in 30 minutes. I do a two-mile run, and then I do 50 pull-ups, 50 push-ups, 50 hanging toe touches to the bar, and 50 um, squats. It takes me about an hour. And I've got these really, this really heavy sweatsuit I have that I made. And so uh, it's like 150 degrees in this thing while I'm doing that workout. And I do it every day. And it sucks. And I hate it. When I think about my daily workout, what I want to do, it's got to suck. It's got to make me want to vomit. Why? Because I, number one, it, it dumps an enormous amount of chemicals, feel-good chemicals, all kinds of chemicals in my brain, in your brain, when you do that. I want to do it early in the morning. I want to chase it with a cold shower and, and a good meal. And it starts my day on the right foot. It gives me a bunch of momentum for the rest of the day. And by the way, anybody who says they can't sleep well, which is a, a major societal issue, just join me for the workout a couple of days in a row. You'll sleep, you'll sleep just fine. If you're not sleeping well, you're not working hard enough. Yeah, it's very true. I think everyone knows to some degree when you, whether you're doing physical labor or something else, it's strenuous for a full day. And then you go to bed that night, you sleep literally like a baby. The other thing I want to talk about is diet. What are your general principles around diet? You got to think of your hours. Make believe you were a restaurant, right? You got to think about your hours of operation. When are you open for customers to come in? Like when, when is your mouth open for, for food? And you can't be open 24 hours a day. You can't be stuffing your face all day, all night. Your stomach needs a break. Your body needs a break to actually digest that food and extract nutrients from it. And, you know, you should get hungry again for most of our time on this planet, if, if we've been on this planet as some form or a species for a million years, for you know 99.9% .9 of those years, we got hungry every day. And we foraged or we found or we killed food. Right now, we're hardly ever truly hungry. So make sure your hours of operation are you know, somewhere between nine and five. But Joe, that won't work. We have dinner late at night. Okay. If you're doing late night dinners, which you shouldn't, then start eating around noon. But try to only eat, you know, eight, nine, maximum 10 hours per day. You know, you want to be shut down for business for at least 14 hours. Next, if we own the restaurant, is quality. What's the quality of the food we're putting in our mouth? Are you living on chocolate bars? Are you living on salad? Are you living on, you know, very salty steaks and burgers? Like, what do you... What are you eating? I would, I would subscribe. Again, my mother's had a philosophy and gurus since the 1970s. I've tested my own self a bunch, and I know everybody's different. More veggies, more salad. Everybody said, well, where do you get your protein? I don't eat a ton of protein. I might eat fish a couple of nights a week. I might eat a piece of meat I don't know, once every two weeks. I don't even eat that much meat, but a lot of salad. I'm back on oatmeal. I eat, I eat oatmeal in the morning because the workout is so brutal. I need something. I seem to be doing well on, on having some oatmeal in the morning. But I would say with every meal, as far as quality goes, which is, which is number two in your question, number one was hours of operation, number two is quality. Try to have a salad with every meal. 
And don't turn your salad into a pizza, right? Don't cover it with like a ton of cheese and mayonnaise, all this crap that people put on. That's not a salad. That's a pizza. All right. And then number three, quantity. What's the amount of food you're going to eat? Well, you know, you should know. Don't eat to the point where you're full because you're going to get even more full 30 minutes later. Eat to the point where you're still slightly hungry and then you'll see 30 minutes later you'll be full. So with those three things that you should pay attention to, hours of operation, quality, and quantity, you got to nail at least two of those every day. You got to nail two at a minimum, right? So if, if you're eating a ton of food, if you go overboard, then make sure the quality is incredible and make sure the hours of operation are as, as low as possible. If, if you screw up and you eat from 7 a.m. till 11 o'clock at night, make sure the quantity is low and the quality is amazing. You follow me? So nail two of those every day. Do you intermittent fast or no? I do, and, that, and that's the hours of operation concept. So for me, I try to eat between nine and five every day, but this morning I probably ate at 8.30 and I, you know, I might end at 6 p.m. Oh, that's, that's not that bad though. I was thinking when I think of intermittent fasting, I think of, I personally do 12 to, to five or six, right? So I never eat breakfast, which seems crazy to some people and probably counterproductive relative to some things that were told on the health side. But again, this is a very overgeneralized concept, but the, the, a lot of the stuff that I've read and seen from a study perspective shows that basically if you can compress the amount of time that your body is working to digest this stuff and eat, it's much more productive. And you don't have to worry about, to your point, being open all the time and constantly feeding yourself and digesting and doing these different things. There's, there's plenty of studies. I'm not a doctor, but you can look them up where they test them on animals, right? And the animals are able to digest easier and faster when you do it for a three hour window versus an eight or nine hour window. But if you can get it down to a point where you're saying nine to five, you can still get all your meals in in that point, and it doesn't really feel like you're fasting, but basically what you're doing is you're eliminating any early, early breakfast, and you're eliminating any late, late dinners, and it probably accomplishes 80 to 90% of the same thing. Nine to five is very doable. By the way, if you want to go 10 to six, that's fine. You want to go 11 to seven, not as good because you're getting into those hours where you're going to be going to bed on a full stomach. All the big, big studies show that nine to five works, works beautiful. What happened with the kids camp? I remember reading or hearing, I think you were on Joe Rogan's podcast a while ago, and you were talking about a kids camp that you guys were doing. I don't know if it's still going or if it was just a one-time thing or whatever it was, but I remember you talking about basically you got these kids to a summer camp. They were somewhere between the age of seven and eight and maybe 18, somewhere in that kind of range. They weren't allowed phones. They weren't allowed video games. They weren't allowed any of that stuff. And they did some physical labor, but essentially you were molding them to some degree. Maybe talk a little bit about that experience and kind of what your end goal was. Well, selfishly, we have children. My wife and I have four kids and my four kids are basically in a death camp all day, every day. And it's easier to put your kids through that if they have other kids around them. So when COVID hit, I basically asked family friends who were happy to shed their kids and send them to me on the farm, get them out of the house, right? We took whatever, 30, 40 kids, brought them to the farm. And ran them through what I call death camp. Makes the kids feel badass because it's called death camp. Parents are like, oh my God, this guy's a nutcase. And they are basically in the military. They're in the military for um, as many days each tour consists of. So the first year we did it, I think we did three tours. So my kids were stuck on the, uh, doing death camp for like 42 days straight. 
and, and a, a typical day is, you know, 5 a.m. wake up, they're getting screamed at by a drill sergeant. They're in ice cold water. They're doing sit-ups, push-ups, complete chaos, right, to try to rattle them. Then they're carrying rocks up the mountain. We've got a mountain in the backyard. Then they're running on the trails. Then they're coming back for some breakfast, which is less breakfast than they, than they otherwise would have at home. So we're keeping them just a little hungry. Then they're doing some philosophy. I do throw in some, some classwork for them, which is outdoors. And then, and then just back at it, whether it's wrestling, we call it fight club. And this goes on until about eight or nine at night, 5 a.m. to eight or nine at night, they go to bed and it starts the next day. And every day I wake them up 15 minutes earlier. So on the final day, they're getting up at like midnight and they're doing a 20 mile trek. There are days where, you know, we have rope climbs in the woods and most people can't climb a rope. We'll have the kids out on those rope climbs for eight or nine hours straight. Their hands are bloody. They're going up and down the rope. They're, they're screaming and crying and they just want to go home. And unbeknownst to me, the kids were texting their parents at night. I would let them use their phones for an hour. And they were texting their parents. So I have a friend who had sent his son and he was back channeling to me the messages from his son. Hilarious if you read the text, but it's something like, dad, you got to get me out of here. This guy's a nutcase. This is not, this is a prison camp. This is not regular camp. We're working like crazy. We're not being fed enough. And my, my friend and, and his wife were not taking the bait. So they responded with something like, oh, it sounds like a Peloton class. And the kid responds like, you have no idea. You and mom wouldn't make it here for 10 minutes. This guy is nuts. Oh, would you like us to get in touch with Joe? We could talk to him. Absolutely not. He's a crazy person. You clearly don't know him. If you say something to him, he'll make it worse on me. You need to lie to him and tell him that we have a family affair and I have to leave. And the, and the parents go silent. And so this takes place every, every summer on the farm. This year, we're going June 23rd to July 1st. And as you can imagine, it's not like there's 10,000 parents out there wanting to send their kids, but there are a handful, 30, 50, 60 kids. Because I don't take a ton, it sells out. I turn... You know, I turn little kids into warriors. And the thought process is basically they just need to do hard shit and, and it'll mold them. How much hard shit are most, I don't even see kids walking on sidewalks anymore. You don't even see kids outside anymore. Yeah, it, it, it has certainly changed. I'm 27 years old. So when I grew up, when I was, you know, 10, 12 years old, I had four brothers. So I, I like to think that I had an advantage to some degree where I was constantly outside, right? We played football, basketball, baseball, did everything you could imagine. And, and we were constantly at the fields and so forth. Today, and I don't want to sound like a, a, a boomer here to some degree and just yell at kids, but it does feel different, right? Video games have become a much larger part of culture. Kids are being given electronics at a much younger age. Social media is obviously a massive component, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, et cetera. And it feels like the hard work component, I don't know if it's been eliminated, but it feels like it's been pushed back a few years, right? So maybe now your first experience to hard work is after college right? And you go get that first job and a lot of it's expected to you and you don't know how to react in this environment. One of the most interesting things I ever did, and I, I highly recommend it to everyone, not because it was fun, it was fucking terrible, was I did a masonry job when I was in high school. You're basically just laying bricks all day. And it's, you know, you wake up, you have to go, I, we, we met at a McDonald's or something like that. It was like a fast food restaurant. And you meet all the other guys there. Most of them didn't speak English. You basically all hop in a van and then you drive to the site that you're going to for the day. And this is at like 5 a.m. So you're there basically all day. It's 100 degrees. We're in North Carolina during the summer. 
you're sweating really hard, you're wearing long sleeves so you don't get burnt, all this stuff. And by the end of each day, to your point, you're exhausted. You're like, you could come home at 3 p.m. and just fall asleep if you needed to for the rest of the night. But I think that that taught me a lot from a work perspective because everything you do after that is like 10 times easier. You're like, ah, I could do this. This is no problem at all. I went to go work at Harris Teeter, right? A food, a grocery store. And I was a cashier afterwards. No problems at all. I'm like, this is nothing. You guys want me to stand here in an AC and just swipe items all day? No problem at all. So this gives me those similar vibes of like, just put some kids through some hard shit and they'll figure other things out. No doubt about it. And, and there's nothing better than steel work and masonry work to teach young children. So you just gave me an idea for this year's death camp. I'm bringing up a couple of masons. I'm going to have them build a, a stone cabin. Oh, uh, you'll have to apologize to the kids from me. <laughs> that sounds that sounds like a nice addition, though. I want to ask two more questions before we wrap up. And one of them is just about dealing with people who are average, right? We talked about how we get people from average to great. But I'm sure as an operator of a business, you have, you know, I don't know how many employees you had, but I'm assuming it's a large number at this point. And you're bound to hire people or deal with people that do not hold the same work ethic of you or have the same goals as you, right? As you're, you're the owner of the business, no one wants it to succeed as much as you do. How do you deal with those people as someone like yourself, who is obviously self-motivated, who has a hard and a, and a good work ethic? Just talk me through how you think about dealing with people who may not be as exceptional or as motivated as you are. Well, I mean, it's hard for me, to be honest with you. When, when we're a small team, I've built a bunch of businesses over the years, a small team, four, five, ten, even 10 people around you in an office, you could quickly see the outliers, the folks that are average and eliminate them or somehow inspire them or eliminate them. Um, when it becomes bigger, when there's four or 500 people to distribute workforce, you can't see them. It is tough, but, but I'm working on it because my dream, I don't know if I'll ever achieve it in this lifetime, is to have only above average people in every area. But most of the world is average. Just by, just by definition, as you grow, you're, they're going to sneak in there. I got to figure out a way to inspire or eradicate. Yeah. And do you have a process for attempting to inspire them or it's a case-by-case -case basis? Well, we're really lucky. We, we have a purpose, right? We, as a company, we, we are changing lives. So that inspires folks. Even in this new office here in Florida, I just told my team, we're going to have a 9 a.m., you know, five minute meeting where we get people around and basically like a football team would, right? And try to inspire them for the day. But I think expecting most people to be as inspired as the owner all day, every day, you're asking for a lot. Gotcha. And my last question would just be around sleep. I've become fascinated with sleep and, and measuring my sleep and making sure I get the appropriate amount of sleep. Everything I've read, everything I've studied and, and just how I feel has made it very apparent and very obvious to me that sleep is one of the most important things for your overall health and wellness, mentally and physically. So I've put a lot of focus on it over the last few years. I make sure that I get eight hours of sleep every night, essentially. I sleep on an eight sleep mattress, which is this thermoregulated bed that essentially lets me get it really, really cold, or you can get it really, really hot, depending on kind of how you want to sleep. I keep it really dark. I don't look at bright lights before bed, all of this stuff, right? Talk me through your sleep routine. Are you similar where you care about it a lot or do you just fall asleep easily and wake up when you wake up? Because I work so hard my whole life, I, I fall asleep sitting in a chair. I fall asleep on an airplane. I fall asleep. Any, I had a philosophy for a long time, like sleep when you can, not when you have to, because like I just didn't sleep a lot. I do try to get to bed early now. In the last three plus year, I try to get to bed really latest 9, 930. I'm up at five every morning. 450, 510. You know, I'll probably once a month I'll take a nap. I took a nap the other day 
because I work, I did this workout, which I described to you in the middle of a, a building in Florida in the afternoon. I think I did it on Easter or the day before Easter. And I was just broken. <laughs> I was just I need, I'm like, I need a nap, but it recharged me. It recharged me, but not, not too often because then that screws up your sleep cycle. I do agree with you. A dark room. There was one day in my life I slept till like 11 a.m. And it was because I was in my friend's. He's got, he's literally got like a mansion of a, a stone building with these old velvet curtains. So it's completely dark in the room. It's completely cold. There was an, a, a critter making a sound. I literally, I slept till 11 o'clock. I, I slept through my alarm, through everything. So I can attest that dark and cold is good. Yeah, we'll have to get you an eight sleep because it's nice because you don't have to worry about the whole room being cold, right? It, it's just the mattress and it's got like a cooling thing in it. So it, it makes you cold while you sleep. And the benefit is it actually makes you, I probably sleep for the same amount of hours that I did previously, but I don't wake up, right? That was always a big issue for me. It was waking up throughout the middle of the night, whether to go to the bathroom or something else. And now I stay asleep throughout the whole night. So I track things on whether you wear kind of a smartwatch or something like that. I wear a whoop and you can see on there exactly how many times you wake up throughout the night. And what I'm finding is the sleep is much deeper, but it's much more consistent. Mm. So whether you get maybe before I was getting only, only 30 minutes or an hour of deep sleep, now I'm getting two to three hours, which is really what makes the, the big difference, right? Cause human growth hormone is, is prepared and, and your muscles are repaired during that sleep and so forth. So that's something I focused on a lot. And it's interesting to hear, I guess, if you don't have a problem, you don't ever think about it because you're just tired and you fall asleep. But I, I recommend people focus on that as one of the things that they can do to improve their health. Well, you're awesome. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm pumped we were able to do this. I'd love to do it again at some point. I feel like we could talk for another hour based on just the business alone. It's a fascinating concept that has obviously become kind of an industry now. And I think it's only going to get bigger. I think that as we move further away from people willing to do hard shit, there's going to be a number of people that are increasingly willing to do hard shit. And you guys are the perfect example of that. You've built an entire business, a big business, global business, off of the idea that people want to be challenged. And my hope is that that continues to grow because I think that's a good thing for society. It's a good thing when people are, are testing their limits and put in situations that are not easy. So I'm rooting for you guys coming out of COVID and I haven't done one. So now I owe you and I'll have to come do a Spartan race at some point. I'll challenge you. Any Spartan or Tough Mudder, we have a bunch of brands, anyone you want. I'm going to challenge you to find uh, 300 of your listeners, followers, all free on me. And even if you don't want to run it with them, you should, you should use it as a way. I've done this before with, with hosts. Use it as a way to, get a ch you know, to physically meet a bunch of people that, that find your stuff interesting. But it's all on me. So just shoot me an email, joe at spartan.com. And it'll be interesting because if I do 100 podcasts a year as a, as a guest and I throw that out there, Two, take me up on it. So let's see, if, let's see if you could be three. I'll try my best. I mean, I would love to do it. I'll do it physically, right? Even if no one comes with me. So if I can recruit 300 other people to try it with me that are listeners and want to meet me and do all of that, then that sounds great. <laughs> so if anyone is listening to this and wants to do it, shoot me a DM, shoot me an email, reach out to me. And if we get enough, we'll set it up. I would love to do that. All right, you're awesome. Thank you. Sir. All right, thanks, Joe. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Palm Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. 
I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.